Nothing better better, Mr. Postman. Mr. Postman, look and see. Look at me. My nah. voice is corrupted and I can't sing. Da na na. But this is parody, so we can't include it. Da da na da people. dee doo. Thank you, Supreme Court and Mad Magazine. <laughs> Baba da people. Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Wow, I wish I was surprised. Why does the past keep reaching out and grabbing me by the throat? Miles' voice is at its pitch zenith. I love Salty Jim. I love Salty Jim. Nerd it up. On today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 20, but first a word from our sponsor. Hello and welcome. We are your hosts and sponsors. Well, hello. We're sponsoring your journey through Season 2, Episode 20 of Murphy Brown. Let me sponsor you down this memory river of the 90s. <laughs> memory river of the 90s. That's our new tagline. hey that's let's, you know what, let's change the name of the show. Sounds good. Uh, we are actually back with a guest writer who we've had before, uh, Craig Hoffman, who wrote TV or Not TV, the mm. beginning of the season, which seemed like such a long time ago, and it aired March 19th, 1990. So we have a kind of popular, well-known song here. Not that they're not all popular, well-known songs, but I feel like this is one of the first Motown songs I ever heard. This is one of those songs that when you hear it playing, even if you only know the two words... <laughs> You can hum along with this song pretty across generations, I would say. Yeah, it's called Please, Mr. Postman. It's from 1961, and it's by the Marvelettes, which, of course, was mentioned in the pilot. We love them. We love the Marvelettes. So the Marvelettes were an all-girl group from Michigan whose original members were Gladys Horton, Katherine Anderson, Georgiana Tillman, Juanita Coart, and Georgia Dobbins. Known at the time as the Castayettes, ha ha ha, uh, they came together in high school in a glee club in 1959. By 1960, they were auditioning for Motown, and Motown, of course, was just starting at the time. Uh, and they ended up being the first girl group to be signed on the label, but they wouldn't sign them until they had written an original song. So Georgia Dobbins then wrote Please, Mr. Postman, and they were signed in 1961. And that same year, Please, Mr. Postman was released on the Motown label, and it was the first song to reach number one on the R&B charts. Go them. Other hits you may know are Playboy, Beachwood 45789, Too Many Fish in the Sea. This song in 2017, Billboard magazine ranked Please Mr. Postman as number two on a list of the 100 greatest girl group songs of all time. In 2004, the Marvelettes were inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame. And in 2013, they were inducted into the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame. Get it, gals. Yeah. Shall we get into the episode? Let's get into this episode. All right. So we open... In a new place for us, uh, we open on the song, Please, Mr. Postman, in the mailroom. As a woman who loves a label maker, I love seeing <laughs> how things get labeled. And so the first thing we see is a series of mail slots in the mailroom, nice wooden mail slots of, of the olden days that I remember so well. And what we see in all caps is M. Brown, F. Fontana, J. Dial, C. Sherwood. The hustle in that room I know so well. It is cramped. There are people shuffling in this organized chaos. Everyone kind of knows where they're going. And they're, you can tell people are used to like somebody's arm going high because somebody's probably going to be coming low as they pass by something. It is a true mailroom of mailroom days where things are being sent and delivered and it is constant and there's no email to get your messages to you. This is the way everything's coming through. And you have telegrams and you have packages and you have mail, actual just first class mail. We see these things. A small package bounces off a pile of things and down onto the floor. Someone is weighing some mail and they accidentally weigh a salad. A man is eating a sandwich that falls apart onto a package. Uh, and uh, that guy is kind of familiar, isn't he? Oh, yeah, Lauren. Uh, Where might we recognize that man? Because that is director Barnett Kelman. Sure is. And one of my favorite things to note is as they go back to the mailboxes, we see that the mail slots of our heroes are filling up in a very particular order of mail importance, which gets referenced in a little bit, which is we have Corky with a stuffed full, like cram full mail slot. Uh, Frank and Murphy are about the same, about halfway. And Jim is just kind of tagging behind them with uh, about a third full. 
and we cut to the bullpen with a nice ding of the elevator. And we have the gang around Miles. They all seem to be checking with Miles about some, some ideas. Jim offers an update on the Poindexter trial. Miles hates this. Frank asks about the fate of the stealth bomber. Miles really hates that. Corky wants to uh, ask about maybe the Miss USSR contest. He really, really hates that one. Miles looks pretty, pretty miserable. And Jim says one of my new favorite Jim lines, which is, oh, stop it, Miles. You're sitting there like some little king. What's wrong with you? And we find out that Miles is getting a cold. This is some this is some prime grand shot acting. It's very rare on the show that they will just give someone sort of a benign storyline or a benign action, which has nothing <laughs> to do with the main storyline. And it, it was kind of a joy to watch mm-hmm. Grant Shaw slowly have a comic cold. Like the growth of the cold, the the stages of the cold. Like it it's it could have just been a gimmick, but you really we go through quite an arc with the cold. It feels like any other actor they wouldn't have given him this cold. No. It's very no. specific. They wanted to give him something to do. This is one of those episodes where not everyone gets featured. Mm-hmm. It gave a wonderful opportunity for Miles in an episode that otherwise is pretty Miles light. It doesn't feel like shoehorned in. It, it really, mm-hmm. and it's, I think, because of the performance. And Miles says this little speech, which I know you have something to say about. So I'm going to read this to you, and then I want to hear what you have to say Go about for this, it. Lauren. I'm getting a cold. I can feel it starting in the back of my throat. I used to be better at fighting these things off. I'd visualize my white blood cells as the powerful American army and the virus as the bad Russians. Now, now we like the Russians. Maybe I'll try the Chinese or some Islamic splinter group. No, I could never win against them. They're fanatics. Maybe United Germany. Yeah, I'll try that. Yes. so this is 1990, which is obviously like a big time for what TV and film would reference as American villains. Mm-hmm. Russians, Germans. So I was found it very funny that I found this article called Vanishing Villains, and it particularly quotes this entire speech by Miles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's quoted as saying, you know, with the Soviets basking in the spirit of Glasnost and communist governments falling one right and another, the world's supply of stock villains is seriously threatened. <laughs> And it goes through, you know, interviewing producers of The Hunt for Red October and The Untouchables. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing, obviously, but I will put a link in our notes. But there was one particular quote, which I felt I had to uh, read to you all. Hmm. It starts to speculate on what the new kind of villain could be. It mentions environmental polluters have become quite popular Oppressive governments, a la Handmaid's Tale. I think this is referring to the movie. Obviously not the current television show, but interesting. It names that. Mm -hmm. And quote, and greedy real estate barons are expected to crop up. The last group is sometimes referred to as the Donald Trump type villain. Mm. Although the namesake seems to have been inspired by the amount of wealth, not the degree of evil that these bad guys represent. Oh, that hurts. It really does. Oh, man. I mean, to quote Battlestar Galactica, all this has happened before and all this will happen again. And the amount of ways that various things like this article or The Simpsons made prophecies about what would to come is really horrifying. It's like we knew and there were signs. (laughs) Yes, and it's not like Donald Trump wasn't mocked on many a sitcom from Golden Girls to Murphy mm-hmm. Brown. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, that's fun. It was It was like when I read the uh, the first draft of one of the episodes we did, and the secretary was a germ freak and was wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. And it felt like, why does the past keep reaching out <laughs> and grabbing me by the throat? Why is it taunting me like this? Uh, anyway, back to Miles. Frank is trying to cheer up Miles, and he says, well, he might have something. It's not completely developed. It's a, a ring It's a ring of medical assistants who are selling drugs on the black market, which that, that would be interesting. And uh, he says he just needs to, he needs to go undercover, but he needs to find a new undercover role, to which Jim says, not the old bum again. Frank, we're sick of it. And Murphy arrives. Murphy is annoyed that everyone is meeting without her. And Frank, inspired by uh, Jim's comment about 
not wanting the old bum role again, he adopts what I'm going to call a South Asian accent of sorts. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to disturb her because they knew she was working on her new story. Murphy uh, notices this accent and he says he's working on a new undercover identity. And Murphy says, good, we're all sick of that bum. Now, I just want to take a pause. As a, as a dialect coach, I have, uh, I have very strong feelings about appropriation of dialect and culture. Now, you may assume that I'm about to get all woke in the room and lambast uh, Frank's accent in this moment. What I actually love about this moment is that it is immediately clear he's not going to continue this. What I love is the fact that there is no praise for this character. He does not pull a breakfast at Tiffany's and suddenly is playing an Asian character. He tries an accent and it clearly crashes and fails. So I appreciate that for the joke, we see him going to these extremes and the fact that there is no question that he is not going to do this. Now, had Frank turned around and like adopted this character for the rest of the episode, I would have a very different opinion about this joke. Mm-hmm. Um I love the show Psych, and there is a joke where a character is a white man who has a very strong, I would say, Mandarin-influenced accent, and they're like, dude, that's really offensive because he works in an Asian restaurant, and he says that he was adopted by a family with that accent, and this is how he talks now, which that's a whole other conversation as far as a joke or something you might want to do, and I still am on the fence about that particular joke, Uh, but that's not something that Frank is trying to do. Frank is not actually trying to pass as this person, nor is he actually continuing with it, but I do want to just say for the record that I, as a dialect coach, have a very specific ethical practice, which is that I will never adopt an accent I could not actually play with respect to culture and race, Um, but I'm happy to work with people who could work on that accent and give them feedback so that they can perfect their own. And I think that that is a very specific line we should walk. I think in a scenario like this, I think the joke works because he's clearly terrible at it. And it's, he's not going to follow through. Yeah, no, and it's a good point. It did take me aback at first, though. When oh, yeah. I was, and I yeah. think it was supposed to. I was to. like, oh, no, where is this going? Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm proud of them for not making that long-term joke, mm-hmm. which I think it actually pays off better because he's so bad at it, it's immediately scrapped. And as we will find out, several more uh, characters are about to be attempted. Yeah, I think it becomes a running joke that Frank is not good at acting. He's not. He's not. And I love that. He's very excited, very passionate. He's all in. Loves a costume. <laughs> He's just not good at it. So Miles approaches Murphy uh, and wants her to check his glands, which is such a specific I am a sick child <laughs> comment. Yes. And she says one of my favorite lines, which is, I'm not touching you, Miles, anywhere, ever. Yeah, no, it's pretty great. It's also, beautiful. her hair looks fantastic. Oh, she looks so good. And she says, but if he is dying, he should look at this. And she holds up a VHS tape. Before he goes, it'll make him proud to know her. Miles is very excited because this means she finished the safe sex piece. And she says, the statistics are mind boggling. AIDS and pregnancy in teens are at a record high. But when a high school in Ohio starts to distribute condoms to its students, it set off a huge controversy. It's very hot stuff. He asked her, if, did she include all points of view? Is it balanced? And she said, you could put it, you could put it on a scale. It's so balanced. <laughs> but I guess you'll be the judge of that. And I actually, I, I know we want to talk about the condom thing real fast. Mm-hmm. But I also want to call out the fact that I love this small moment of Murphy saying, but I guess you'll be the judge of that. The way she does is actually in a way that is very respectful to her producer, which is she says, I know it's balanced. But at the end of the day, it's your call. There was something actually very, very cool about that singular tiny moment, the way she said it. She wasn't sassing him. She wasn't being, it wasn't a a slight. It was actually like, I made sure it was balanced, but you'll be the judge of it at the end of the day. She respects him now. Mm -hmm. It was a really nice moment of reminder. So uh, Lauren, I think you have some thoughts about condoms in schools. Um, No, I'm going to talk about condoms on television. Oh, please do. So this is really more towards, I think, the outside eye as opposed to what's actually happening uh, in the world, I would say, because Mm. I thought this would be a good time to talk about something that I think is interesting, which is condom advertising, particularly on television, because it's actually a little newer than you might realize. So this is, of course, 1990. And just to kind of give you some context, you know, but as of 1990, more than one third of American radio and television stations accepted condom advertising, mm. 
whether there was an emphasis on public health or not, but there were no national ads, which is the big thing. So cut to November 1991, we have this new fourth network station, Fox, and they agree to air a condom ad during an episode of Herman's Head, which in this article I found described it as an offbeat teen show, and I was confused. Huh. Yeah. to me. Uh, For anyone who doesn't know, Herman's Head, which we've mentioned before, is about an adult man who we see all of the characters in his head kind of like inside out that control his brain and all the different parts. I think they're like lust. There's the intellect. He's an adult at an office. I don't understand why it's an offbeat teen show. But anyway, condom advertising had been deemed legal by the Supreme Court in 1977. Ten years after the Supreme Court decision and six years after the first reported AIDS case in the United States, there were PSAs that were airing, but the larger message for the larger percentage of them was abstinence or else. Very few were actually condom PSAs. Also, to give you some context, in December of 1986, the New York Times announced it would reexamine its ban on prophylactics and contraceptive ads because of the threat posed by the AIDS epidemic. In January 1987, KRON-TV, which was an NBC affiliate, so again, not national, this was in San Francisco, became the first major market station to air a condom commercial, but it was Pulled eventually due to public pressure from religious groups, which I think will be a theme as we talk today. But, of course, throughout the 80s, independent television and cable like MTV were airing condom ads, which might be why, even for myself, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, I was like, this was confusing to me. Mm-hmm. Also interesting is that even though this ad appeared during Herman's head, it was not considered prime time television, which oh. also surprised me. Yes, technically... Primetime television is between 9 and 11, I guess. Now, condom sales increased 40% between 1986 and 1987, which is interesting. But experts argue that the growth rate wasn't fast enough to outrun the rapid spread of AIDS. Now, back to 1990, this commercial during Herman's Head was a Trojan ad. It was 15 seconds. And it was about to help reduce the risk because the Fox criteria was that it had to be prevention of STDs. They still wouldn't let any commercials for condoms be about birth control. And the same year as Herman's Head, Fox rejected an ad for another condom company that featured spermicide. Hmm. That also surprised me. Despite the fact, as Murphy references, the U.S. at the time had the highest teenage pregnancy rate in the developed world. The other three major networks continued to refuse condom ads because they considered them to be in bad taste. The first condom commercial to air in primetime was June of 2005. Jeez. So here's a question for you, Jesse. Yeah. As I wrap this up, what do you think changed between 1990 and 1991 that led Fox to want to air this condom commercial, even if it wasn't about contraceptive? Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive. Of course. Yeah, that's what I said. I went, ah, oh, of course. Yeah. CJ Key of Key Concepts Inc., which was a marketing firm, said that thanks to Magic Johnson being so honest and so open, we're dealing in a new world and a different environment. Yep. Wow. Uh, Many critics were saying that the networks were being hypocrites because they were accepting ads for sponges, but not for condoms. And the network said that condom ads were more offensive to their viewers. (laughs) Okay. Well, wow. I wish I was surprised. Yeah. And then by 1992, the Seattle Times was making a big deal that Diane English's new show, Love and War, had a whole scene about condoms. And it particularly called out Murphy Brown and Love and War for being so open on television at the time. Yeah, go, Diane. Yeah. <laughs> so the mail kid arrives with a, a cart full of mail. Ray Bob! Ray Bob! You'll understand what we mean in a moment when I explain why we just yelled Ray Bob. Uh, so... He arrives and uh, asks Murphy where she wants her mail, and she calls him Ray. And I, at first, I was like, oh, I love that she knows his name, which is exactly what you're all supposed to think. She says, my secretary went to the ladies' room six days ago. Something tells me she's not coming back. She says, thanks, Ray. He says, my name's Bob. And she says, it is not Ray. This cracked me up because I had no idea this was a running gag. Yep. (laughs) I mean, when it happened in like a couple episodes ago... 
who knows when, because we've been doing this for a while now, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, oh, it happened before. But the fact that this is the second time and I yeah. I know the third time, which is one of my favorite episodes of season three, I was mm-hmm. like, this is like a like a trifecta gag that I had no yeah. idea. I'm so excited. <laughs> anyway, continue. Jim and Frank get similar normal stacks of mail, much like Murphy. Miles gets one piece of junk mail. Corky gets the entire mailbag that's in the cart, Mm -hmm. which, not surprising. And Miles gets a single piece of junk. And (laughs) Sweet Bob says, congratulations, Mr. Silverman. You may have already won a million dollars. Which is such a specific, timely joke, which if you grew up in that time, you totally knew. Murphy holds up a pink envelope and has another very of the time, but I think still relevant joke, which says, here's an interesting letter, obviously a fan letter, or another two-for-one sale of Victoria's Secret. Because it's pink. And I'm going to read you the letter. Mm. Murphy begins to read. To the chairman of Woodco House Cleaning Products, I understand that you are a sponsor of the news program FYI. I read in the paper that an upcoming segment will deal with condoms in teenagers. The subject, I feel, has no place on television. Suddenly, Frank has opened a similar letter and begins reading in tandem and takes over with, if you sponsor this program, I will feel compelled to, and Jim picks up the reading, boycott your product, very truly yours, and Corky joins in, Mrs. Marianne Miller. I love the signature, very truly yours. Can we also talk about the fact that they're opening up their own mail and that this is eventually how people get anthrax? It sure is. But we're not in the anthrax era yet. (laughs) Or again, they're just doing it, you know, for the guy's, you know, disbelief because it's more interesting in the show if they open up their own mail than, you know, a secretary. I think it's I think it's the latter. I think it's the effect of them all reading the same piece of mail to then make the point, which Corky just does is about to, which is that Mrs. Marianne Miller uh, sent copies to everyone from the sales staff all the way up to the president of the network. It's it's actually very clever. I like mm-hmm. it. So I want to talk a little bit, not too long, about boycotts. All right. Laura, do you know the origin of the word boycott? Oh, that's the one thing I didn't look up. Of course Yay, you okay, did good. the origin. Please, nerd, nerd it up. Tell me what is the, the Girl, origin not of boycott. Not only do we love etymology in this house, this is from Ireland. Of course it is. Boycott was not a word. Boycott was a name. <gasps> oh, like teetotaler? Yes. Oh, I'm very so, excited. So during the Irish Land War of the late 1800s, I think we're in like the 1880s. Of course, this is what you're going to talk about, Jesse. I'm sorry. Yes. I love it, but I'm going to laugh. <laughs> Continue. So, I guess we'll call him an absentee landlord called Lord Earn. Earn. We're in County Mayo, Ireland. Lord Earn had a year of bad harvests. I'm going to say this is probably a generous read. He thought himself a very generous landlord and offered his tenants a 10% reduction in their rents Oh, after a very bad harvest. His tenants clearly did not agree. They protested and demanded a 25% reduction. Lord Earn apparently had ran out of generosity. And instead of dealing with it himself, because he's a lord, he sent his trusty land agent, Captain Charles Boycott, oh, no. to evict them. God, this is like the Earl of Sandwich. Uh-huh. So there was a uh, a member of the Irish Land League known as Charles Stuart Parnell, and he had proposed dealing with landlords and land agents through a peaceful form of social ostracism rather than resorting to violence. So instead of rioting against their landlords, he proposed that they should just simply ignore the offender and conduct no business with them. His workers stopped working in the fields and stables, as well as at his house. Local businessmen stopped trading with him. The local postman refused to deliver his mail. And he was facing, like, massive financial strife because nobody would take on the job of harvesting his crops. So eventually he hired 50 men from elsewhere to come and harvest his crops. He paid for an escort of a 1,000 armed policemen and soldiers to bring those men to his estate. Because they had promised no violence, no violent action was taken against him or his hired guns and workers. But it cost him so much to hire people to harvest his crops that he lost so much money. He then becomes old-timey viral, and he writes into the uh, the newspapers complaining about the boycott, which then just inspires everyone to root for the boycotters. And within a year, his last name becomes the term for what we now know as boycott. Like wow. it spread so quickly that in one year, the word was a staple in English language. That's insane. And honestly, I feel kind of bad for the dude because it was because a lord didn't want to deal with it. 
it cracks me up. Go Ireland. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some famous boycotts. Yes. Uh, Lauren, do you actively boycott anything? Yes, I do. What? I don't shop at Home Depot. Mm-hmm. I don't buy Chick-fil-A, but I never really did. So that I don't know if that really counts. I'm not really a fast food person. Are you comfortable sharing uh, why you don't do these things? I don't do these things because it is my understanding that they give money to organizations, including anti-trans, anti-LBGTQ plus mm-hmm. organizations that I don't believe in and I don't want my money to go towards. Mm-hmm. So I am similar. Actually, uh, I don't need to go to Home Depot because I live in an area that has plenty of those types of stores. Um, But my active boycott is Chick-fil-A. So in 2012, many people know Chick-fil-A faced controversy when the president, Dan Cathy, criticized gay marriage and reports surfaced that the company donated to anti-LGBTQ plus organizations. The company did not suffer financially because apparently people think those chicken sandwiches are worth it. I also actively try not to, well, not try to, I don't. Um, I, I do avoid the Salvation Army. Oh, yeah, I well. don't. I will not give them. That's my other big one. Chick-fil-A yeah. and Salvation Army are my two big ones. The only time I've ever eaten Chick-fil-A, it's because it was provided at my job at the time as the family meal. Uh, and it was given for free. Some other things that I found of note that I enjoyed looking at. There was to protest apartheid in South Africa. Uh, An international campaign against the oil company Royal Dutch Shell was launched in 1986. In America, there was a nationwide call uh, from labor and civil rights groups asking for the public not to buy gas from Shell stations. Uprising of outrage over apartheid, uh, Congress voted to override a veto by President Ronald Reagan on the uh, Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986. This banned South African imports, airlines, and foreign aid from the U.S., The end of apartheid began in the early 1990s when Nelson Mandela and other political prisoners were freed. Apartheid officially ended in 1994, and Mandela became the country's first black leader. In 1977, the Infant Formula Action Coalition organized a boycott of Nestle Company. The company advertised its infant formula was better than breast milk, pushing the message harder in poorer communities. This led to a new marketing rule set by the World Health Organization, and the boycott ended when Nestle agreed to comply with most of the standards concerning infant formula sales. They faced accusations again in 2018 that that they once again violated ethical marketing codes. In an anti-shopping move, Buy Nothing Day was launched in 1992. It started in Canada, but has become an international movement. I was looking for things that are specifically Murphy Brown time. In 1984, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, organized a three-day protest and boycott of 30 stores operated by Food Lion Inc. in several southern cities. The supermarket chain failed to sign a fair share agreement to improve employment and economic opportunities for black workers. It was the first time the NAACP took direct consumer action against a company. The boycott ended after Food Lion signed an agreement with the NAACP to increase minority opportunities, including adding more management positions for minorities, hiring more minority employees across the board, and signing on with more minority-owned vendors. There are so many more. I highly recommend uh, looking up stories about boycotts because Boycotting, and one of the things that is mentioned in this episode, is a really strong way to make a statement if you can get enough people to notice. Yeah, what's interesting is I feel like the type of boycott in in this, which we'll get into, Mm -hmm. is really sort of referencing, because it's just her, obviously, Mm -hmm. which I think is on purpose, but it Mm -hmm. really seems to imply a lot of things like the Coalition for Better Television, Mm -hmm. the Moral Majority, things around like 1977, Mm -hmm. the the National Federation of Decency Mm -hmm. that were formed by people like, or I should say people on the board of these type things were like Jerry Falwell, Phyllis Schlafly, religious leaders. And I found that interesting. Like, I feel like even though she doesn't mention that she's a religious person, obviously Mm -hmm. we're implied at the end that she is a Republican based Mm -hmm. on how happy she is to be in that final scene, which we'll Mm -hmm. talk about. I love that you brought up all this stuff on Murphy's side because she's the exact opposite. But we're still saying that she has the right to do this, right? Yeah. But I think what's interesting is I felt like they were implying what was sort of happening around this time, oh, yeah. which was religious groups saying, you will not teach my children what I think is wrong. And I, I would I would caution in this conversation that it's not necessarily religious. I think there, I, there I'm is particularly a... Talk, sure. No, absolutely. I'm particularly talking about things like the moral majority, the Coalition for Better sure, Television. Sure, sure. But I think that there yeah, are... That were started in the religious right. Yeah. But I think sometimes we have a tendency, uh, and I'm talking in a royal we, have a tendency to conflate conservatism with specific, they're often intertwined with uh, specific religions, but it's not necessarily one religion's uh, influence. 
Yes, and thank you for saying so, mm -hmm. and that's definitely not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, I just was looking up things that were happening at the mm -hmm. time. Yeah, I mean, and I feel like it influenced this episode, but they specifically, probably on purpose, made made sure that that was not her. But that was not what was behind her reasoning. They didn't mention mm -hmm. at all any sort of religious affiliation. But it reminded me, and maybe it was just her attitude, <laughs> that she felt a little Phyllis Schlafly-like. Um, maybe that triggered me in a way. But I, I was surprised myself when I looked up sort of the early 80s and what came up. Yeah, and I think that's why it's important because you you know my intense uh, deep dives and history of research on, on the Schlafly. I think it is important to talk about the other boycotts like many of the ones I just mentioned that were happening at the same time yeah. that were on the quote-unquote right side of history. Miles's response to the fact that she sent so many copies to everyone is, uh-oh, this could be a problem. Murphy's response is, so, so she wrote to a sponsor, big deal. Corky's not handling this well. Corky <laughs> has realized that somebody hates them. I'm a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant with a higher TVQ than Barbara Mandrell, which I'm not going to take the time, but y'all look into Barbara Mandrell. That is a story. Murphy's response is basically like, do we actually think the network would pull this story because someone is mad? And then she says, now if you'll excuse me, I've got a picture of my dry cleaner on my dartboard for over a month. I think I found my next guest of honor. Speaking of being mad at someone. <laughs> so now we're at Phil's and Miles's cold is progressing so badly that they have him sitting at another table. Poor Miles. <laughs> uh, Phil encourages him to feed a cold. And he recommends the meatloaf. Phil says that it's a natural antibiotic, which, of course, I said, no, Phil, that is matzo ball soup. Everyone knows this. But anyway, I digress. Frank tries to do a southern accent for Corky, which does not go over very well. She asks if he's full on a hot tin roof. I mean, well done, Corky. Good line. Miles gives the loudest sneeze into his tissue and then looks at it and goes, oh, God. That's part of my brain that does long division, <laughs> which is apparently a very famous outtake because everyone can't stop laughing every time he does that. <laughs> oh, and eventually they let, you know, Miles sit at the table with them, I should mention. And then Jim comes up with the head of sales, him thanking Jim for being a team player. He's definitely the stereotype of what you might think as the sales ad guy. And uh, he's got very large uh, hand gestures and an accent, uh, slicked hair. And Frank tries to mimic him behind him which also does not go very well mm -hmm. because they're doing a show on condoms. He says that he just can't get sponsors for the show. And Murphy lets him know that it's because there's a national health crisis. What I'd like to give people some context is that a lot of people, I think, know the famous episode of Golden Girls mm. when Betty White's character Rose gets a letter in which she's informed that she may have gotten a blood transfusion and she may have AIDS, and that is discussed on the show. And it's a very famous episode because it's one of the earlier times where it was discussed on such a national show. Mm -hmm. That was February of 1990. Yeah. This show is airing in March of 1990. Back to the comedy. Sorry for that digression. The ad guy, whose name I can't remember. What is the ad guy's name? I can't name? remember just, his name either. Yeah. Just ad guy? Ad guy. Larry. It's Larry, right? Maybe. Al. Al Henderson. The actor's name is Larry. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Al... That advertisers hear Shirley Temple Black interview and they're fine. They hear Trojans and it better be a big wooden horse. Murphy employs him that he is the father of two teenagers and that he would think that this would be he would be happy about this and that it's helping a really big problem. And Murphy cannot take Frank mimicking Al behind him and tells him to cut him at, cut it out very loudly. And Murphy knows that it's the pink envelope lady. He pretty much, you know, agrees with all of them, but the problem is that they need sponsors to do a show. And right now, all they have is Little Mort's House of Carpets, which she's going to go talk to. And Murphy makes an assumption about this woman, right? She makes an assumption that she must be from a very small town. She doesn't know what she's trying to do. I was like, haha, famous last words. Mm -hmm. And that she's going to reason with her. Corky, of course, is skeptical because uh, she remembers how she reasoned with Elizabeth Dull, uh, who apparently Murphy didn't push into the reflecting pool. She fell. <laughs> This is, of course, if people aren't aware of Elizabeth Dole, she at one point was the Secretary of Transportation, a senator, and the head of the American Red Cross. Uh, so that's not something maybe you want to push into a pool. Jim thinks that, that their stories are always fair, and if they just, you know, explain to this woman, and they all kind of come together with this great idea, they're going to fly her in, first class, the best hotels, dinner at Sardella's, Corky will impress her with her quirky self, <laughs> and they will talk the stupid boycott all out of her. In fact, I think they even refer to her as Betty Crocker, right? Mm. 
Now, something really quick before we exit this scene, I do want to say something that I found out because we do mention Sardella's, that they're going to mm-hmm. take her to Sardella's. Unfortunately, Diane English's stepfather passed away recently. Oh. I didn't know this, but his last name was Sardella. And so obviously she named this really important restaurant in the show after her stepfather, which I thought was really sweet. That's lovely. Yeah. And so we cut to. We're back in the bullpen. It's, I assume, the next day. Miles's voice is at its pitch zenith. He's staring at his pill bottles saying, oh, God, it's wearing off and I can't take another one for 32 minutes. Jim tells him to go home. He says he can't because he can't operate machinery. We hear, too bad, now you can't take that backhoe out on the beltway. Miles says that he can't find his his lozenges. Jim, did you take them? And Jim, with the best deadpan. It's so good. Yes, Miles, I took them. I took them and I hid them in my office and now no one will ever be able to have them but me. My favorite Jim. I love Salty Jim. I love Salty Jim. It's so deadpan and great. It's great also because you know he had to have been pushed so hard Mm -hmm. to be that salty. Mm -hmm. He's just lost it. And Corky is very busy prepping for Mrs. Marianne Miller's arrival. She wants Murphy to offer her a piece of the bunt cake that Corky made. You might want to compliment her on her traveling outfit. And Jim pipes up that Murphy can handle this. She's not a social misfit. And then he turns to Murphy and says, try not to spit on the woman, Murphy. Traveling outfit. It makes Corky sound like it's 1850. I love it. <laughs> I mean, we're not that far away from, like, the generation of you still had your tra- traveling outfit. Yeah, yeah. I know. You, you dress um, nice on a plane. Yeah, you do. I know. It's just yeah. the way she says traveling yeah, outfit traveling as opposed outfit. to plane outfit. It's great. I love just in the background, Miles is clutching his medicine desperately. Like, just clutching them to his breast. Well, they're wearing off, and I've literally been Miles oh, in this situation. Oh, I know exactly what that feels like. I know ex- I mean, truly... I've been on a desk cleaning window blinds going, it's, I'm coming down. Mm-hmm. Coming down. It's, it's, it, become, it can be very fast. <laughs> a woman arrives. It's what they all expect. She looks like a, a plump middle-aged woman from the Midwest with a style that's a bit frumpy. And of course, the gang arrives to greet her as Marianne. Audience, you all know this is not Marianne. You all know this is Murphy's new secretary. 32. Number 32. And she says she's sorry she's late. She's never been to a television production office before. Is it always so busy? And Jim, in his great anchor voice, is like, just responsible people doing a responsible job, putting important stories together for the public good. And everyone is fawning over themselves to introduce. Uh, Miles is trying to introduce himself. And they go through this lovely uh, pattern where everyone talks about bunt and they all chime in about what bunt is is until we get to Miles, who says, yes, from the German, bunt, meaning cake, I suppose. (laughs) And they sit her down at the the chair of honor in the little coffee area. And uh, she says, well, this is all very thoughtful and not at all what I expected. And the gang has gathered basically around the other side of the round table. Like somehow they found the end of the table, even though it's round. Murphy's nearest to her and says she knows that it turns from this sweet Midwestern woman that you assume she is. And Murphy just suddenly grabs the the conversation by the horns and says she knows that talking about sex isn't always easy. But in today's society, the reality is people have sex, which brings us to the subject of condoms. So why don't you go right ahead and tell us how you feel about that? And the secretary has gone rigid. Um, She's uh, she's very, very surprised. I also want to call out that this is the amazing Kate McGregor Stewart. Just going to say, love her. She's been in so many things, but one of my favorite roles of hers is as the uh, the other parents of the the parents of the groom and father of the bride. Yeah, I feel like that's how most people are going to know her from. Oh, her and Peter Michael Getz, who play those two, are perfectly like everything that would undo Steve Martin because they're rich but so nice. She worked a lot in the 90s. Oh, this constantly. one of the first things I think she did in California. So, And she just goes rigid and her face drops and she says, you know, personnel warned her about Murphy, but this is too much. She stands up <laughs> grabbing her stuff and says, when I worked for Spiro Agnew, all I had to do was let him rest on my, his head on my bosom and storms out. Right past a very stylish woman, a tall, slender woman with a stylish bob, a beautifully patterned coat that I absolutely want, and a very sleek outfit. Is that a wig? Mm, I don't know. Doesn't it? It feels like a wig. It does. I think it's a very good wig. Yes, but but it feels like a wig. That hair is so specifically stylish. 
Yeah. Like, it's very early Anna Wintour. Like, it's very intentionally stylish that I feel like probably the person who auditioned maybe didn't have that hair, but they wanted that look. Yeah, because she's so good in this part. And she's she, she just, yeah, the way that she speaks, it's so specific. Yeah. Well, and you character. get a good, also, it's very perfect. And a yes. bob like that oh, is actually so very difficult to get very perfect. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the control of that might be a wig. Uh, and she says, Miss Brown, I'm Marianne Miller. No one's ready for this. And they mm-hmm. offer her some cake, though some is missing because the slice that they gave to poor secretary is still sitting there on the plate, half touched. She's quite the speed demon. She's very busy. She assumes that they are too. So let's get right to the point. Murphy starts to introduce the gang and she says that's not necessary. FYI has always been one of her favorite programs. And she turns very warmly to the gang. And then she says, this is why I was particularly disappointed to learn that you are promoting sex education. Murphy says, no, they're reporting a story. And she says, when you tell my children how to prevent pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, you're telling them that it's all right to have premarital sex. Well, it's not all right with me. Quick sidebar to point out that to this day, according to Planned Parenthood, only 29 states in the District of Columbia have laws that mandate sex education. And even in those states, there's no guarantee that the sex education provided is of high quality or covers the topics young people need to learn about to stay healthy. Fewer than half of the schools and only one-fifth of middle schools are teaching sexual health topics that the CDC considers essential for healthy young people. And the ways that they can teach this, I grew up in abstinence-only world. Like, Mm, Oh, yeah. The things that that are not shared, that are not required to be shared, the ways that the different school districts decide who determines what is shared or not shared, this particular scene could absolutely still be happening right now. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting, Mm -hmm. yeah. So Miles chimes up and he's like in professional mode. And he says that, you know, this story is not biased in any way. A significant section was devoted to school board members who share Marianne's point of view. And then he says, I have a cold. (laughs) (laughs) And this is very interesting. Marianne gets very firm toward Miles. And it's one of the first times that we've seen like a guest talk down to Miles like he's young. And she says, young man. These are public airwaves. It is not your place to educate me or my children about sexuality. That's my role as a parent. And does a very like condescending nod and turns away. How many kids are watching 2020? Exactly. That's all I just need to know, lady. And then she says this line that I do find very interesting, which is that all she has is some stationery, a stamp, and a right to choose what she buys. And so far, the sponsors have listened. I guess this is why this made me think of Phyllis Shafley, because I know that, you know, she helped Reagan's campaign a lot Mm -hmm. with letter writing. And Mm -hmm. it sort of became, it ushered in this new way of going after a certain demographic Mm -hmm. by letters. And I know it's completely different, but it might might have just been also because I just saw that miniseries on it. Mm -hmm. I I feel like there's a lot. Anyway, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, the the whole, this is all influenced by Phyllis Schlafly. I, I know I've gone into huge amounts of depth in yes. previous episodes about Phyllis Schlafly, but the thing about it is like everything that this woman is representing in this episode is the Phil- Phyllis Schlafly effect. It go, is yeah. the beautiful, educated, put together conservative woman who can stand toe to toe with the liberal, progressive, educated women. That it's not just that she is what they assume, which is a frumpy, small town pleb. Yeah, exactly. Like she is sophisticated. She is smart. She can talk circles around them. She knows what they're saying. She's actually educated enough to have the argument. One of the great hypocrisies of Phyllis Schlafly and of that movement is all of the things that you have as far as your education, as far as having a career in this, goes against everything you're preaching. Exactly. So Murphy says that she sees she won't convince her here. Why don't we go on a little walk by the reflecting pool? And Corky swoops in with a, oh, Murphy, and offers a much better idea of lunch and Elizabeth Arden facials. Oh, Elizabeth Arden. Uh, unfortunately, Marianne is very busy. Uh, she actually needs to leave. Uh, she has an FCC hearing on community standards that she's due to attend. Jim attempts to state their case, and they're kind of chasing her to the elevator. And right as Jim is attempting to come in with his responsible people doing responsible stories, Frank arrives at the elevator. The doors open. We see Frank in what I think he thinks is a mobster character named Uncle Frankie. And Frankie scored. He's got uppers. He's got reds. He's got every kind of drug under the sun. Yeah, Frank's whole Uncle Frankie character is... A testament to Joe Caputo's uh, just full-on commitment to character. 
Marianne is staring at all of them and looks disgusted and said, you people are really amazing. I love the look on Murphy's face. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> yeah, just like, um. And we cut to. We cut to um, Eldon walking away from Murphy, and I feel like we're losing a scene here. I don't have an uh, an unsyndicated copy of this, so I don't know yeah. what's missing or if maybe it was just like that originally. But something was there when they filmed. Mm-hmm. It seems very obvious that they had a moment and we've missed it. So Eldon is going to go to his truck and, and make an entry in his diary. <laughs> uh, Murphy goes, great, the Eldon papers. Uh, Miles enters. His cold is just like, oh. it is the worst that it can be. Eldon warns her that she's whining about her petty little problems. And he asks him if he'd like to join him in the truck for a cappuccino. <laughs> I'm sure he's got a cappuccino maker in there. That's, oh, yeah. that's what I'm guessing. Now, Miles has um, an Elmer Fudd type winter hat on, would you say? Yeah, it's, oh, what is that hat called? There's a name for that hat and I know it. But yeah, it's Elmer Fudd hat. Yeah, he says that flying with a cold is pure hell. He's been in New York with the head of the network. And he explains to her that they're losing $1 million in in lost ad sales. So there's a lot on the line. Mm -hmm. He makes a mini Pearl joke, which I'm going to skip. Uh, And Murphy wonders if they bow to every single public interest group. You know, there'll be no integrity in the news. I went, oh, Murphy. Hmm. Yeah, Murphy. And Miles says that, he did something which feels like what Miles does is in a crisis, that he he stood up for himself. And he said that if they couldn't cut a deal, he would resign. Hmm. And then Miles has to sneeze. <laughs> and the comic pauses of him trying to sneeze are fantastic, as well as annoying the hell out of Murphy because she can't get an answer. And she can't take it anymore. And he finally says that if they can find one sponsor, that they can run the story. And Murphy is happy because they have one. And Miles knows it's the Consolidated Baked Goods Company. Um, but he knows that um, they are as good as gone. Um, also, we need to talk about the lovely outfits. We have Murphy in our favorite robe. Mm-hmm. Miles in a Burberry jacket. Yeah, it's nice. Very very nice. He's make, making the good money, making some good choices. And then one of my favorite lines in the episode, I actually cackled when Murphy said this. She said that she's not going to cave. She only caved one time in memory, and that's because he said he was shipping out in the morning to the Peace Corps. <laughs> and I literally cackled out loud. Miles tells her that he just wants to lie down and drain somewhere, which, of course, then I wrote um, neti pot. Like, not Miles, you need a neti pot. Yes, you do, you sir. Right you need that beautiful neti. And I love how he just sort of, like, throws himself on the couch and he throws his jacket over him. This is such a great obstacle for an actor, right? Yeah. Like, give them something to work against. Mm-hmm. Just a small thing to work against. And then there's tension. A much more interesting scene if they had just gone with, like, well, Miles is neurotic about this and Murphy wants this to happen. Mm-hmm. So Murphy decides that they need to go in person to the sponsor's headquarters. And where is this this sponsor's headquarters, Jesse? <gasps> it's the Windy City, Chicago. It's Chicago. Where I currently reside. I'm there sitting in it right now. <laughs> you are in it. I am in it right now, and it is warm. <laughs> Miles can't take another plane ride. Poor guy, he... no. His head will explode. Yes, and then he goes into this sort of like fugue state kind of drug, <laughs> maybe hallucination, sick thing in which he feels that if he goes on, on another plane, there's a slim chance that the pilot will die <laughs> and they'll ask me to fly the plane. I'll have to say, I'm not allowed to operate heavy machinery. That payoff of that joke is <gasps> a masterclass. It's a masterclass in comedy. Oh. And also the way he says, I'm not allowed to operate heavy machinery is a take that I think most actors wouldn't go with mm-hmm. because it's like painful. Like he just, if only he could operate heavy, it's so hurtful to him. Mm-hmm. It's so bad. I just, oh, chef's kiss. Yep. It's, it's beautiful. It's so well done. Yes, and so Murphy is a, is a 90s woman because she pulls out her file facts. <laughs> and off to Chicago she goes. And we cut to, we're zooming out on a wall of an office. But first thing you see is the wall that is celebrating the evolution of the toaster snack 30th anniversary. 
It's quite the shrine. It, it to is definitely a shrine to uh, what to became Pop Tarts. <laughs> Murphy enters in this hot pink blazer with a cape number. Like it is, it is the it is war. It is the war method <laughs> of color and style. And uh, she tells the secretary that she has a 10 o'clock appointment with Mr. Bryant. Please don't feel like you have to make a fuss or give me any special treatment just because you see me on TV every week. And the secretary just looks at her and goes, I don't have TV. I have a life. I personally love any time Murphy gets like taken down a peg. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so Anything satisfying. She's like, oh, okay. And right then, someone else arrives. And look who it is. It's Mrs. Marianne Miller just passing through Chicago, is she? And they realize that they have appointments at the same time with Mr. Bryant. And Murphy does a does a very impressive moment. She says she, that she doesn't agree with Marianne's stance, but she respects her commitment. She thinks the people on her side have a lot to learn about the importance of speaking up. Marianne thanks her. And I honestly, I agree with Murphy. And then after a thank you from Marianne, Murphy says, I'd like to say that as far as this meeting goes, you're dead meat. I have a reputation for getting what I want, and I want this piece to air very, very much. Have a nice trip home. <laughs> and Mr. Bryant appears. Murphy turns on a sales pitch like nobody else. Mm -hmm. And she says, how great it is to be in the Windy City, land of the big shoulders. Go Cubs! Here's an FYI hat that cannot be bought in any store. Okay, what's the big shoulders? I honestly did not know the reference. I had to look it up. I've never heard that here. I know Windy City, and I know that it has nothing to do with the wind. It has everything to do with what giant blowhards the politicians were. Oh, interesting. I did not know Land of the Big Shoulders. Also, I watched this episode for this recap, and within the next week, I heard someone else reference Land of the Big Shoulders. Ooh, interesting. I was like, I had never heard that until this point. And now I've heard it twice. So, you know, I, it's... It's a very Midwestern thing. Mm. Marianne just gives a very polite, how do you do? Uh, Mr. Bryant says that he's busy, so uh, they'll just state their cases all at once, and he'll hear both sides of it. And they head into his office, which, to Murphy, and honestly to me, it is a patriotic nightmare. Uh, Marianne <laughs> is thrilled. The looks that Murphy has and that Marianne gives Murphy upon seeing this office are tell a ha the entire story. I wrote that he looks like he's auditioning for the House of Representatives. It is like leather tufted furniture, dark wood everywhere. There are multiple flags and there is one giant flag that Murphy gets to sit next to. And she goes, it's big. And he points out that that flag was given to him personally by Alexander Haig. And for those who don't know, that's the United States Secretary of State under President Ronald Reagan and the White House Chief of Staff under Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. He, uh points out that uh, there's a picture of his grandchildren, uh, Dwight David, little Trisha, and their dog, Millhouse. Murphy knows she's screwed. And we find, he asks, you know, the two of them, do they have any children? Uh, Marianne has two, Jason and Jennifer. Murphy has none. Her neighbors do, a boy and a girl, I think. Only saw them from the back. It was Halloween. They were running away. Bless her heart. He says that he uh, he is very familiar with their Emmy award-winning program. Oh, he is. How long are you going to keep the quail bashing? Ding. I love that Murphy sits back in her chair in dismay at that moment. And he continues that he's not the only person who can't name all those little square states in the middle of the country. <laughs> Which I'm like, dude, you're in Illinois. You're in the middle of the country. Anyway. And now Marianne wants to say something. I have to say in this back and forth about the children and his grandchildren and his dog Millhouse and all this kind of stuff. Marianne has just been beaming and doing the like hostess with the mostest good mother of children like lady of the house energy. She's clearly at this moment on top in this argument. And Murphy has pretty much given up. And Marianne says that she wants to say something. She is a steady customer. Her children never leave for school without one of their products in their lunch boxes. And Murphy comments said, well, she's been away for a week, so they're probably eating cat food by now. And she laughs, <laughs> which uh, Mr. Bryant is not amused. And he says, let's stick to the issues, shall we? He says that he's glad that Marianne said that because he shares her outrage at the erosion of moral standards in the country. And she's very excited that he says that. She says, yes, she feels more and more that television is not acting in a responsible manner. He chimes in that, that they are not self-censoring. And that's a very disturbing trend. Oh, Marianne is so relieved to hear that. She says, if we don't set an example for our children, who will? I believe it was Barry Goldwater who, and Murphy just interrupts with, okay, okay. She can see the handwriting on the wall. And she proceeds to say, look, and she stood at this point, like Murphy is, is done and ready to leave. Look, 
It may be pointless, but I'm going to say what I came here to say, and then you two can go off and have a John Wayne film festival. Mr. Bryant, if you allow one person, any person, to force you to bow to a boycott, then you're not just hurting me at FYI, you're hurting the very principles of free speech. And another thing, and Mr. Bryant cuts her off and says, Miss Brown, I'm not going to pull my advertising from your show. And the mo- this moment is, again, the faces on these women tell the entire story. Like, kudos to these two women. Marianne is horrified. Murphy just freezes. Mm-hmm. It was like, don't scare the cat off your lap moment. <laughs> he goes, oh, no, but I interrupted you. You had more to say? And she goes, no, thank you. I'm done. And just sits back down and is very smug. And Marianne says, but I don't understand. Mr. Bryant has a wonderful speech here, which I will read to you. It's very West says, Wingy. It's very West Wing, which I think why I was like, yeah. Sorkin, Sorkin. Conservatives are not uh-huh. what you think. Exactly. And I mean, it's one of the reasons I love the West Wing and one of the reasons I love Sorkin and one of the reasons why I love Diane English and the writers that she fosters. He says, Mrs. Miller, you're a good customer and I've always made it a policy to listen to my customers. Now, for instance, if you felt I should make my cookies with white chocolate chips instead of milk chocolate, you could write me and tell me so. And if I got enough of those letters, I'd probably change my recipe. But I would never change my recipe to suit one person or one small group of people. So if you have a problem with Miss Brown's segment, do what I do every week. Turn her off. Or change the channel until that nice Miss Sherwood comes on. What I love is that Murphy at that moment looks both miffed and impressed. Yes. Like, kudos to Candace. And he says, you have a choice. Why? Because this, Mrs. Miller, is America. Murphy stands up and wants to thank him. He says he hopes that she learns something. That not all conservatives agree on all things. Maybe you'll remember that the next time you lump us all into one category and take a few easy shots. You liberal firebrands don't hold a patent on standing up for freedom. Marianne stands up and says she thinks he's making a big mistake. She still intends to follow through on her boycott and leaves. He watches her leave and is stuck in this room with Murphy, the two people who do not want to be stuck in the same room together. And he says, too bad. Who's going to give her some free coupons? 50 cents off any box of Fudgy Buddies. They're up to $5 a box now. They cost him 34 cents. God, I love this country. <laughs> and what I wrote at that moment was, Murphy has a new story. <laughs> yes, she does. I don't know why he told her that. I know. I was like, dude, you know she's going to write an expose on this now. But hey, kudos. Now, I'd love to uh, quickly just uh, read this quote mm-hmm. that Diane gave regarding the upcoming season. And she references this episode that I'm sure they were talking about in the room. We have the perfect format to make it a platform for our own views, Miss English said. We get requests to do a show about this or that, but we can't allow ourselves to become vulnerable to that. The choices have mm-hmm. to be internal. We plan a show about advertisers pulling ads from a controversial episode of FYI. We want to show all points of view, but ultimately, a point will be made at the end, and it will be whatever I decide it will be. A lot of responsibility comes with doing the show. Mm-hmm. The What we now know is like the West Wing kind of quality of that final speech, but, you know, clearly is also a very Murphy Brown and a love and war and a very like uh, Diane English and crew kind of statement as well is that... One of the things I love, and this is something that has become a value of mine, is that, you know, anybody who makes an assumption or takes themselves too seriously immediately needs to be challenged on that. Yes. What I love is that they do that to their main characters. One of the things we love about this kind of dramedy quality to this show is the fact that, you know, Murphy, we agree with her 99.9% of the time, but there are times when she is wrong and we get to grow with her and enjoy her learning from it. Yeah. And it's funnier when she's wrong. It's so much fun. And it's fun to watch her, like, make an assumption that she's going to have to have this big fight. And the guy's like, no, I'm I'm doing what you want. Yeah, because then you it would be predictable. To... You want to go against yeah. expectation, just like she's everything that they, you know, she's the opposite of what they thought she was. Mm-hmm. This guy's the opposite of what they both thought he is. Well, and I think to the point that we made earlier about Phyllis Schlafly, like, we talk about the hypocrisy of, like, these, you know, empowered career conservative women, but we also need to not be hypocrites when we are constantly talking about the fact that like we contain so much more. Don't judge us by our cover. Don't like, you know, look at someone, make a a snap judgment about who they are and what their morals and their ethics are. We also can't do that either. Mm -hmm. Like he said, we don't hold the patent on being right or protecting freedoms. Just because we think we are more correct doesn't mean there aren't people that we can that we can connect with. So I, I think it's it's a beautiful way of saying like, hey, I don't agree with you, but every once in a while, like that, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. Like, mm-hmm. or my favorite version of if you left, if you left a bunch of, I think a bunch of chimps 
with typewriters for a thousand years, they would eventually write Shakespeare. Yes. You j- there's no such thing as an absolute. And there are going to be moments when you actually agree and you need to be open to experiencing those moments. Even if most of the time I would disagree with their politics. Exactly. This is a, a really interesting episode. I wouldn't say it's one of my mm-hmm. favorites for for jokes, but I there's a lot of it I really liked. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of it that I find incredibly relevant right now and I'm really glad I watched it when I did yeah no I think it came in the run for us to talk about it at kind of the perfect Mm -hmm. time yep speaking of things that are really great to have at the perfect time you can also follow us on social media Murphy Brown Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and the Instagram. And you can email us at murphybrownpod at gmail.com or come to our website, murphybrownpod.com. Yeah. We'll have some extra information about this episode on the website, lots of pictures, fun stuff. Uh, Definitely uh, drop us a line because we love to hear from people uh, so that we're not talking into a void. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) 